Welcome to Policy Matters. My name is Matt Dixon. And I'm Franz Beauchamp. And today, well, we're not joined by anyone. It's, uh, it's just you and me, Franz. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> that's, that's echoing the listeners up and down the land, I think. Uh, yeah, probably. <laughs> that comment, but yeah. So it's just you and me. But um, the reason is, well, we thought it's kind of almost the end of the year. Um, and it's been, qu- it's been quite a year. Uh, it's been quite a year, it. a long year. Yeah. And uh, it's seven months since we did our first kind of Zoom recorded uh, online episode. So we haven't been to the studio since uh, March. That's right. I can't, you know, you're absolutely right. I just thought about that when you said it. I'm so used to Zoom and doing everything online. Yes. We used to do this in a studio with big mics and everything set up and everything very professional. Yeah, Yeah. very, we were proper radio people. And now we're we're just like everyone else on Zoom, right? (laughs) Um, But I mean... I don't know. So when we first recorded on Zoom, it was like, you know, April, we're about one or two weeks into the first lockdown uh, or just lockdown, as we called it then, because we didn't realize that there was going to be a sequel. Um, And so we were just yeah a couple of weeks in. We thought, you know, now is a good time to kind of revisit some of the questions that we were discussing then, um, reflect on what's happened, how things have played out, um, the sort of things that we know now that we didn't know then, and and maybe look ahead a little bit to uh, what the next uh, few months may bring. Yeah, you know, it was, it was, it's it's strange. I mean, I think we all thought it would be over very quickly, didn't we? I remember scheduling interviews and stuff, physical interviews for, for, for jobs, uh, into early May because we thought it would all be over by April. So yeah. very much a bit like, you know, World War One. it'll be over by Christmas. <laughs> yeah, we'll all be home and celebrating. And uh, yeah. yeah, I was the same. I mean, I had a, a, some conference I was supposed to go to, I think in June, and it was like, oh, look, it's probably not going to happen. So this was in Mexico as well, right? And um, okay. it was like, it's probably not going to happen. It was just a small kind of workshop and we we're organizing and it's like, okay, it's probably, it's probably not going to happen in June. We're probably best to postpone it. Let's pencil it in for like September. And, and uh, now it's, yeah, we're, we're still not kind of rescheduled, but um, yeah, I think we all had that impression that it was going to be a bit shorter lived than, uh, than it's panning out to be. Um, but just looking back at that April episode, the first thing we talked about was just our lives in lockdown, right. And how, we were just kind of adjusting and there was something slightly, I don't know, um, at the very beginning, there was something almost fun about it with the children and, you know, we're, we're at home and, you know, I say fun in, in the sense of obviously it was, ter- you know, it was a terrible. I think kind we of, have different understandings of fun. <laughs> yeah, but it was terrible, awful, like global situation, but something with the children, you know, trying to make it a bit fun for them, right. And make it kind of not t- terrifying and make it like, okay, so we're going to have this time. We're going to be at home and, that sort of thing and we were just getting used to that back in, in in April so how did that work out for you the kind of juggling the homeschooling and the working from home um you know I think it was it was you know very much a story of kind of two halves on the one hand like you said it was a lot of fun I think a lot of people a lot of parents who well not a lot of parents maybe some parents <laughs> you know were able to you know enjoy that time with the children we certainly bonded as a family uh, a lot over anyway what would have been the holiday period anyway the only thing that dropped for us is that we were supposed to go away so we didn't go away we stayed here spent a lot of time playing games going to the park or you know just playing in the garden that kind of stuff yeah. so that, that was kind of good but once the whole thing sort of extended both my wife and I are working full-time and it did get really stressful actually really until the summer and I was very burnt out by the summer so there was a lot of working well 
till beyond midnight, really, because a lot of the childcare would have to happen during the day. Uh, it's just impossible to work, to concentrate. A lot of our work actually isn't just answering emails. It's also kind of creative thinking, research, yeah. deep thought. You know, sometimes I'm sitting there in the chair and my wife is saying, oh, what are you doing? You're doing nothing. I'm like, I'm thinking, I'm thinking. I have to think at some point. <laughs> yeah. And work so, things out. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was tough. I think it was tough. Um, and it really didn't get better until September, till s- school started again. And, uh, and I think a lot of people would have been in that situation. In fact, we'll talk about, a bit about self-employment later. Uh, there's a recent report by the LSE where they dug into kind of what happened to the self-employed and also children and childcare and schools are a major issue in that uh, because a lot of self-employed actually work from home. Yeah. Um, so the kind of the homeworking thing that you and me are kind of new to, actually that have a lot of people who are self-employed were already doing that. So suddenly once you drop children on top of that, it becomes very, very stressful indeed. It was super stressful and yeah. I think uh, really... Uh, recognize what you're saying about that kind of game of two halves type thing that you know the, in, in in a way it was okay at the beginning and you kind of got used to it a little bit but then that by the summer there was a point so my wife wasn't working um at the time so she was able to do more of the the homeschooling but you know she was doing this every single day with this you know three kids uh i'm trying to work but also not be completely absent you know be around and and i just you know got to a point so that's even with, you know, not even in the situation that you're in where, and lots of people are in when you've got two parents working or just the one parent and they're working and, you know, trying to manage everything. Um, we got to a point in, yeah, having to work late and then got to a point in the summer where it looked like, you know, we'd canceled holidays and then it was like, oh, okay, well now you are going to be able to go away, but everywhere's booked up, right? And we didn't want to go on a flight. So it was like, you know, in the UK, everyone's booked up and got to a point where it looked like we weren't going to have a holiday and it was just like breaking point you know it's just like you just can't keep doing it you're gonna to have to just stop work and just take some i think time. the mental health aspects of this were, were, were really quite quite severe and, and the thing is you and me are, are still some of the people who are better off in all of this if you look at the distribution of people who kind of came through this kind of relatively unscathed you and me are probably on on the side and <laughs> that kind of came out the best uh, but still you know there were big worries about our future, about our jobs, you know, okay, we work in an industry that is kind of relatively safe, but still, I remember looking at the projections, the, the finance projections in, in May and June, and, you know, people were talking, you know, when there's 20 million pounds missing, what are we going to do? Last time we had 20 million pounds missing, many people lost their jobs at university. Yeah. Uh, and, I, think that's know, I remember going through several rounds of redundancies over the last 10, 15 years when we came into these kind of financial crises. And, you know, a lot of people were worried, okay, come September and we don't have any students, who's going out the door? Um, so a lot of stress, a lot of stress, really. Yeah. And you think, like you say, we're fortunate in that we're in, yeah, in, indus- in an industry, in a sector where it's, you know, we're going to have students. And so it's, it's relatively um, secure. But yeah, I mean, um, as you say, the mental health aspects of it, just the kind of well-being aspects of it, even you know i'm very aware of of the fact that we haven't got it anywhere near as bad as a lot of people and so just that insight into just how stressful i mean i think there's going to be we'll talk about it you know later on that there's going to be a legacy of of um, issues to work through over you know over the coming years to get back to a, a state where people are on a much yeah more even keel i think um uh, and and well-being's back you know where, where we'd want it to be yeah, I think that will take quite a while. And um, I'm, you know, I mean, we'll discuss it later on the show, but I think mental health and, and issues around that, there's a lot of kind of hidden latent effects that, that came through this. Yeah. Um, 
that happened this year that won't actually pop up in data or people will really realize the full gravity of it for many years down the line. Uh, I mean, like I said, we'll talk about it later, but if you're looking at suicide statistics, mental health and all that kind of stuff, birth rates, uh, that data isn't out yet. I looked at the ONS website. That won't be released until late 21. So it'll be a full year yeah. before we realize what's going on and some of these other factors uh, in our lives. Absolutely. I think, and it's kind of been different then since the summer. We had, we've had this kind of hokey-cokey of uh, restrictions and relaxation and then the tier system and then the second lockdown. It's all been, you know, it's all been a bit weird uh, and, and not really knowing what, you know, where we are and what, what you're allowed to do and what you're not allowed to do. But I think, as you said, you know, once schools were back open, that just makes a whole world, you know, a whole world of difference. And I think, Fortunately, me, that was the best policy decision that came out of all of this. Yeah. Uh, and the rest was all, well, I'm not sure whether I think the policy transmission in terms of information was done um, in a kind of, I, that probably could have been improved a little bit since we're constantly changing tiers and changing the definition yeah. of tiers. And, and you can kind of see it going out. People are not quite following it. Uh, even my, I am not following it 100%. And and it's interesting that early on in the pandemic, they did talk about this concept of kind of fatigue. Yeah. Right. And, you know, when do you go into lockdown? What's the right point in time? People only have eight weeks and then they just get burned out. And I think, you know, we're well past the eight weeks now. Oh, yeah. People are really burnt out. And there's an interesting sort of country comparison here as well, how different countries have dealt with um, the restrictions and how these have been implemented. I, I, I personally, I mean, I can't evidence this, but I personally think it's been a little bit lax in the UK, possibly that might be contributing to the sort of higher, well, worsening statistics in a kind of uh, countrywide comparison. Um, I mean, I know, again, just from personal experience, because my family's there in Greece, you know, when they go into lockdown, it's lockdown, right? It's, the, it's like, you know, the old war curfew kind of thing. So people need to send text messages to a centralized telephone number and then you get an authorization to go out of your house coming back and that's valid for two hours and all that kind of stuff so much more um well police enforced really yeah much more draconian but i think that it's interesting because we talked back in april about even then how things were going and um how different countries were doing different things uh, and I think, yeah, we, we, we talked about Germany uh, and we talked about Greece and, and the fact that, yeah, like, like you say, they do lockdown. They don't mess about when they do lockdown. It's this proper kind of quite draconian measures. But what's really interesting was we talked in April about um, the USA and South Korea, right? As both places that had got their first case on the same day in January and already by kind of middle of April when we were talking um, that kind of di diverged and we you know mm. we know that Trump uh, initially at least certainly wasn't kind of taking it so seriously whereas South Korea was much you know taking it much more seriously and um, this is interesting so back in April when we looked at the numbers it was South Korea had suffered eight deaths per million of the population whereas the USA had suffered 32 deaths per million of the population so that was kind of middle of April and since then um, What's really striking is South Korea has now suffered nine deaths per million of the population. So they <laughs> have actually, yeah, gone up by, by one per million of the population, whereas the USA has gone from 32 deaths per million of the population to 780, which is just staggering, right? 780 per million of the population. Um, in, in, in any sense, this is staggering. If you think about 
you know, you and me are now, you, we're all used to watching uh, daily COVID statistics. Um, you know, I see my breaking news every evening coming on BBC News when I watch it, and it says that many people have died. And we're yeah. used to watching three, four, five hundred, six hundred yeah. people dying per day. Uh, that's a lot of people. Yeah. And if you think about, you know, a war, and it would say, you know, uh, the war in X, Y, and Z is going well. Uh, you know, we're pushing on. We've only lost another 500 soldiers today. <laughs> yeah. And that yeah. happened for 10 months in a row. You know, I think people would have very different reactions. Um, yeah. it's, so, it's actually reminding me of, um, um, you say that there was a, a sun, I think it was the sun of the, you know, a newspaper back in about May or June. And it was when, you know, there was a point where every single day the front page was about COVID, right? And right, you know, hmm understandably so and then we kind of moved into a, a a place where things were slightly easier i guess towards the end of may june and other stuff started coming back onto the front pages so you had non-covid stories and there was once i think it was the sun front page and there was just you know sometimes uh they have you know your main headline and now there'll be a little kind of sticker label almost on it saying just highlighting a story on page seven or whatever, you know, just kind of like a trailer. Mm. And there was like a little kind of box that said um, 550 deaths yesterday or something like this. And uh, someone had tweeted out saying, you know, this is one for future historians, right? The, the front page, there's just a little box saying, oh, yesterday that's 550 or, yeah, or whatever. Yeah. And we've become so used it's to relativize that. very quickly, isn't it? Yeah. And, and it is, it is, it is, it is crazy. I mean, you know, there's all sorts of things about that. Obviously I just made a war comparison. That's not quite the correct comparison. There's a different age group that would die in one, yeah, in one sure. sense than in the other one. Um, different kinds of people, different medical backgrounds, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's not exactly fair what I said, but still you can see in the inter-country comparison, you mentioned 780 deaths in the United States, nine deaths in South Korea. Um, yeah, I think, Undoubtedly, you know, we talk about policy matters. Clearly, policy does matter. Yeah. This is, you know, pretty, we were right. Pretty, yeah. we were, <laughs> the title of the show is correct. Um, and, and it is very much, it's, it's a strange interplay that, that I've personally seen over the last 10 months between politics and policy. And sometimes, you know, when they go hand in hand and work together in the right way, it's, it goes well. Sometimes politics goes off in one way, but thankfully policy goes off in the other way and sorts it out. But um, yeah, when, when, when they both go wrong, uh, you start seeing these kind of results. So I think it's a lesson for, for many people. And it's a, I think one thing I would say, it's, it's what struck me, especially in the last couple of weeks, now that we've seen the vaccinations coming out and you know, Boris Johnson was talking about you know, the cavalry with the bugle coming over the hill and all that kind of stuff, yeah. the scientific cavalry, right? And and now, you know, the mood is suddenly much, much more elated and people are looking forward to, you know, 2021 and the vaccinations and all that kind of stuff. And it is funny how just a couple of years ago, when we were talking about Brexit and we didn't need any experts and any person who claimed to be an expert in economics and saying that, oh, Brexit was a bad thing or, you know, there's repercussions from that stuff. It was just like, you know, get out of here, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and now it's, you know... Uh, whatever, Prince William is calling the scientists to congratulate them on their effort. You know, I'd like a call. My, you know, you can give me a call as well on my research. I do some good stuff on social mobility. Well, <laughs> yeah. where's my call from the prime minister congratulating me, right? So now it's all very much about, you know, okay, the scientists are the heroes and, you know, we love science and we're listening to epidemiologists and we're, you know, taking advice on science and all the policies based on science. So it's, it's, it's I mean, it's kind of funny, but also sad in how just in a matter of years, 
perceptions of science and policy has really done a 180 degree turn. Yeah, I mean, I think we've talked about this before that, you know, prior to Brexit, I think economists were like riding high in the kind of public debate and the respect and, you know, from policymakers, from government. And then that kind of completely, you know, switched around, you know, with economists in particular, just um, getting the boot from, from the, the leave, uh, vote leave party who now formed the government, essentially, yeah. you know, uh, really not interested in, in expert opinion, particularly uh, economists. But as you say, it's now done a kind of complete switcheroo. I don't think, I don't think it has for the economists. I think actually, I don't think probably, so either. Um, no, 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 we're no. still not. Um, no. And, and, not and of course, you know, let's not forget, you know, uh, Brexit's coming in, in a month, right? Yeah. Um, you know, uh, I, I know we've been talking about COVID and, and the negative impact, and it's been such a shock, hasn't it? The problem is, and, you know, Bank of England government said it just the other day, you know, economists still believe that Brexit in the long term will cause more damage than COVID. Yeah. So just imagine what kind of shock is still waiting for us. Uh, it's going to be one of these long shocks, slow and delayed. You know, people won't really realize what's happening, but it's, it's, it's not going to be pretty. No, I think people will probably realise if they live in Kent. Um, with the, uh, you know, deal or <laughs> next no to deal. the motorway. Yes. Yeah, next to the lorry parks. But um, you're right. I think, um, yeah, I think we, we need to park the discussion of Brexit as we always try to do. And uh, maybe it's something we can come to in, in January and, and, and have an initial kind of reflection on, on how that is. But it does, there was an, uh, an analogy in the newspaper a while ago um, talking about, uh, a, I think it was like a US Navy ship that got really bombed bombarded right and then uh the the crew were just left in the water and there wasn't before the rescue could come there was like a a really awful like shark you know oh yeah that's the uss indianapolis indianapolis that's it right and so this was the analogy for kind of covid followed by brexit right you know that actually you know (laughs) by not i don't know by not extending transition by not um potentially not having a deal uh, you're kind of taking the covid shock and what you know whatever's left in the water and just you know inviting the sharks in but uh we will hopefully you know who knows we, we, we i think we, we should have a chat about it again uh, yeah but, you know. we hope for the best but it kind of feels like those sharks might be starting to um sniff the blood in the water and uh, and, and come along but um yeah that's that's for another day but one of the things we do know uh, a bit better now and again we talked about in april the one of the things and it's very difficult for government i mean we don't want to be just criticizing from the, from the sidelines because we've all we've got to remember this is a, a pretty unprecedented in our in our lifetimes for this kind of situation and policymakers were having to make decisions with information from yeah advisors and experts and scientists but at the end of the day it's you know ministers make make the decisions and they you know stand by them and and, and uh, rise and fall on that basis um, but they were making decisions with partial information, like the whole world had partial information. And it's been an amazing collective effort to get information about, particularly on the hard science side around the actual um, the genome of the virus. Very quickly, scientists released that for the whole world to kind of work on and, and, and the vaccine development stuff. So there's been a huge collaboration. And it's been an amazing kind of human effort um, to increase knowledge. But we've been making decisions with you know partial um information but one thing we do you know we do know now a lot more um than we did in april we've got the data which we you know we talked about the need for good data and if you're going to make public policy 
Um, and one of the things that at the time, and it's kind of bobbed about a little bit, is the people popping up saying, oh, this is just like flu. You know, we don't close down the whole economy for seasonal flu. There's no need to do this. It's an overreaction. And there's kind of even beyond that, the kind of fringe of COVID deniers that don't even believe that it's any, even a thing. And, you know, I think we can leave that aside. But just in terms of the, this comparison with flu, what we do have now is a lot more um, data. And the ONS have been doing a great job uh, with their infection survey and collecting the data. And they've shown last week, they put up some figures to show that actually um, compared with you know, previous years, the number of deaths per week has been higher during both the first wave and the second wave than any year in the last five. So this idea that, oh, okay, you know, death, there's no difference in death rates over the year. You know, that's just, you know, that's not true. Um, and in fact, they put out some figures last week to show that the number of COVID deaths between January and August 2020 was higher than the total number of flu deaths in the entire year for every year, you know, since 2000. And so there's definitely, you know, there's no sense in which, okay, this is just no worse than the flu. It's just replacing the flu for this year or anything like that. Yeah, no, I think, um, you know, we, we did talk about data. Data is very important. Uh, a lot of policies based on data. Um, I mean, I don't know anybody, I don't think anybody can argue on against uh, the data these days, you know, even, even, I mean, now obviously we have a lot, but even before, you know, back in, in, I must say credits to the ONS and also public health England uh, and, and other agencies, you know, data came out very quickly, yeah. uh, almost real time. And, you know, you could quite very quickly identify, it doesn't take a rocket scientist, you know, GCSE students and below can see that if you have a line and then another line above the line <laughs> that shows here are the deaths, here are the normal deaths, that yeah. there was a pretty big difference. And that difference, just the way it looked, is obviously very clearly related to some serious catastrophical event yeah. that happened. Um, so I think from that perspective, I mean, to me, more interesting is some of the research that's coming out now. So, you know, we're getting obviously daily statistics being presented in the news, on the internet, yeah. all, all the places, also now aggregated at regional levels, uh, disaggregated at regional levels. And... Um, uh, but we talked also at some point there was a lot of funding being made available uh, for yeah. research into COVID to all the sciences, not only to the medical sciences, uh, social scientists, psychologists, um, you know, uh, economists, uh, all over the place, even towards, you know, it's a lot of kind of my personal pet <laughs> peeve, uh, the low traffic neighborhoods, which are preventing me from driving to school, uh, to school, uh, you know, uh, lots of kind of sort of uh, cycling schemes putting up, uh, being put up across London and et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, society is kind of changing. A lot of money is going into sort of, you know, different prospects uh, 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 and different projects, sorry, I should say. So, yeah, um, I'm, I'm quite interested in the, in the kind of the research that's coming out of all this data generation. Yeah, yeah. So, as you say, it's initially, and I think we mentioned this back in April, already even, you know, economists were putting out um, short papers and kind of getting on, on the research about COVID. And um, we were talking about how, like, I don't know who these people are. They don't have, they don't have kids, you know. I don't know, you know, there, there seemed to be a kind of yeah. a, a small subset of people who could just suddenly, you know, work from home. Um, I had a, I've got a PhD student who was just, you know, no, married but no children and was just like, oh, I can just work. And is just churning out this kind of research, which is brilliant. Mm. Um, yeah. 
but it's yeah. like okay um yeah not, not everyone could be quite so fleet of foot and get you know get it's taken me out. it's taken me so all my own research projects stopped completely because we were working with very secure data that needed um access to a kind of secure data laboratory you know you can't take a phone in and it's all super controlled and all that kind of stuff that's all been shut till now so right. you know i spent the last six eight months nine months instead of working with data trying to get access to my old data that yeah, i had access get, to already trying to get into your own office as well yeah. <laughs> that's, a... that's where all my energy has gone but yeah so other people obviously had a bit more luck on that yeah but i mean and a lot of so I think there's been a lot of good papers that have, have come out, a lot of important papers. We talked to Neil Davis, um, the epidemiologist, about you know one of his papers has just been published, um, uh, looking at, okay, if we're going to learn stuff, we can't just have uh, samples where people have self-selected into the data. You know, for, for whatever reason, the way the sample's been collected, it's, it's very selected. You're not going to learn about the population uh, mm. when you do that. Um, so there's been lots of, uh, lots of good papers out there. And yeah, economists have been looking into the kind of the education effects, been looking into how inequalities in access to schooling during the lockdown um, and how that's exacerbated existing inequalities. So there's loads of um, interesting papers. But one, um, one that I saw recently that I thought was really interesting and really good to see this. Um, it's great when you see economics papers that show you um, and demonstrate conclusively that something caused something else right i mean this is what we're always interested in as as applied economists we you know you can find lots of things you know, lots of correlations out there uh things that appear to influence each other but it's the skill and the kind of science is then in being able to show that x caused y it wasn't just that something else caused both of them or, or whatever because for policy you really need to know that right you need to know what the causal mechanisms are because otherwise you're going to you know spend a load of money on something and it's not going to be good and so this one paper recently that <laughs> like um, test trace yeah uh, well yeah we, we can maybe get into that at some point but yeah if if you don't have the system set up if you don't know what causes what and how things work you're going to spend money and it's going to it's going to go to waste but what was really interesting is this uh, paper that's come out of Warwick Uni Economics Department, uh, Timo Fetzer, uh, this economist, who looked at the eat out to help out scheme, right? Yeah. So this is one of the things that at the time people were saying, okay, this is great to try and, you know, stimulate the economy. And we all, you know, we all yeah. care about the business owners, yeah. um, the cafes, the bars, the restaurants, right? We want them to, to, to do well. So I remember I used it once once well, and i went yeah. out to my local pub and i got a steak and i looked at the menu and i was super happy because normally the steak's like 20 25 quid and i never get it because i think it's too much and it was 12 quid or 10 quid and i was like oh yeah i'm gonna get the steak and i remember i ordered a steak paid a tenner felt really chuffed because it only cost a tenner had a massive steak very happy so yeah there were good there were good things about it i think <laughs> i think we we used it um we used it once and uh, that, you know, it's, it was a big deal, right? For, you know, family of five, you go out for dinner um, and it's, it's expensive. And so to get it pretty much half price, it was like, you know, that was great. But even back at the time, there was concern that, hold on, um, are we subsidizing a second wave here? You know, should we be doing this? Um, because one of the things that we have learned is that, you know, transmission is, you know, adults in, enclosed spaces for a prolonged period of time this is you know where transmission happens the most and so there was concern back at the time and so what this paper um uh from, from team of has done is looked at 
what happened um, with the scheme, so the period before when the scheme was implemented and then when the scheme ended, what happened to people going out? And, and basically they showed, yeah, so the scheme worked, right? So restaurants uh, got a boost compared to the same period uh, in 2019. So comparing uh, footfall and how many people are coming in, people are getting kind of 10% or up to kind of 200% right? uh, increase uh, in business. But what they then found is that if they take that data and have a look at where are the places that had the biggest increase uh, and then what happened to COVID infections in the week after the scheme started. And basically they found that, yeah, the areas that had the highest take up also then had the highest subsequent infection. So kind of 10 to 20 percent of new cases could be put down to the scheme. And what was really neat is, you know, you might think, well, hold on, these might be, you know, there might be a reason these particular areas had you know were more likely to get infections anyway you know but they they tested this with um rainfall data as well and looked at you know use the fact that and this is something you've done before friends right the effect of the yep. weather uh, exploiting that and they looked at okay so when it was raining people uh use the scheme less so again they used that kind of variation and basically showed yeah that you know that this was a kind of causal effect from the the eat out scheme to these increased infections and then when it ended the um, increase going into the restaurants, you know, stopped as you might expect. And so really the, the boost to the restaurants was quite short term, right? It was just while the scheme was on, it didn't kind of change behavior. And then when it stopped, people stopped. Whereas the, the kind of negative, the damage happened, you know, you get this increased transmission and increased infection. It's a really interesting paper. I like reading it. And, you know, what I enjoyed about it is that you're right, it has this kind of causal effect mechanism in it. They use this additional thing like the rainfall data which is a random event, you know, if you're, if you're going out on any given day, whether it's raining or not, it's kind of random. I know there's seasonal effects going on here, but still on that day, it's probably random. And it does adjust your behavior, it affects your behavior whether you want to go out or not. So very interesting to find out that, you know, 10 to 20% of infections are actually due to that policy. So, you know, it's, it's this kind of, you know, unintended consequences or well, maybe not unintended consequences. I suspect people had a guess an inkling that was going to happen. You know, you boost economy, but at the same time, you're boosting the, the COVID infections. You know, what's the trade-off here? And it's interesting that I read the paper and it's kind of written in a, um, it's not written in a very aggressive style. So reading through the conclusion, you know, you could take your pen and paper out and do some back of the envelope mathematics and actually compute how many people died because of that. And actually yeah. what was the economic, uh, you know, cost and benefits of those people dying versus to those, you know, whatever restaurants being saved or, you know, getting X, Y, Z amount of money. Um, but they didn't do that. <laughs> no, no, I think that's probably quite, quite wise. Uh, yeah. They didn't do that, but you're right. I mean, it's a kind of distributional thing that even if it cost neutral, you know, even if it was cost neutral, um, you think, you know, in terms of the cost of the NHS and cost of treatment and, and everything else like this, it's a kind of shifting money from, one place to another to business owners and I think one of the things that it highlights and again is something that maybe we've learned um, over the course of this is that there it's not really a trade-off between protecting the economy and protecting lives because you know you hear you hear this trade-off discussed but actually you know the places that have had the least economic hit are the places that have got hold of the virus you know got control of the virus a lot more and you know you hear business owners uh, talking and we're saying, you know, it's the virus that's killing us, not the, the lockdown measures. 
It's the fact that people won't go out and people won't go out to the shops, to the theatres, to restaurants, to bars, to pubs. People aren't going to do this until they feel safe. And so, you know, uh, you see that actually in Sweden. We, we talked before about Sweden and Norway and, and they took different approaches. And again, Sweden's numbers have gone off the, you know, off the chart compared to, to Norway's. And that's, that was the case back in April. It's still the case now, even, you know, even more so. Um, and they didn't really do the lockdown. But what they found in terms of the economics is that they've had a big hit on their economy, almost as bad as any, anywhere else, despite not shutting things down forcibly, because people change behavior, right? People change behavior and stop going because they're afraid of the virus. So the key, you know, the key has always been get control of the virus, get it to a, a state where people feel confident going out to the shops, going out to the restaurant and your economy will, you know, will, will boost back. And this kind of, as we talked about the hokey cokey of relaxing restrictions and not, and trying to get things back has, has really just, you know, led to us not really getting hold of, of the virus, not getting it under control. And, and you don't then boost your economy because people don't want to go out. Yeah, yeah. No, I think, I mean, listen, you know, there's going to be lessons down the line how to, how to deal with this when the next one comes around. Hopefully that won't be in our lifetime. Yeah, let's take that. Um, so, you know, there's lots of, lots, of, lots of lessons to take away from this. And, you know, I hope <laughs> policy makers rather than politicians, I'm, I'm never quite sure whether politicians can still learn things. So I'm hoping that the policy makers yeah, will well, hopefully on board. Yeah, some institutional kind of memory yeah. and, and, and knowledge will be there. Um, yeah. Because I did, you know, there was again, and then in one of the newspapers the other week, uh, and you don't know how much of this is just a kind of testing the water trailed kind of policy, but it was saying, oh, we might have a winter eat out to help out scheme, you know, bring it back for December. But, you know, which I was like, hopefully that has died a death with the, with this kind of research showing that it's had this negative impact. But I think um, what I don't understand is, why wasn't it takeout to help out, you know, or maybe bring that in for December? Because that would give a boost to restaurants, right? Business is obviously not as much as if you go and eat in. But if you do takeout, minimize the risk of, you know, being indoors with other adults and, and transmission. So I'm, I'm calling it here, right? Let's have the, uh, the Franz and Matt's takeout to help out policy. Let's bring that in. Um, I am behind you. I haven't had takeout for like a year now. And I do miss. <laughs> yeah. I mean, everyone loves so, it. Know, go ahead and subsidize it. I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll subsidize it. But, the takeaway. But it's interesting that you're talking about takeout because there was a report the other day by the LSE, the Center for Economic Performance, where they looked at self-employment and kind of what was the effect on the self-employed. And actually, of course, they suffer disproportionately compared to the, yeah. um, you know, to the normal employees. And um, of course, a significant portion these days of self-employed are actually um, the kind of the app-based, the gig economy workers who, who yeah. you know, who, are, who work for these kind of, you know, Deliveroo, uh, Just Eat, that kind of stuff. And, you know, what you see from this report is, I mean, it's quite interesting. Let me just put some context onto this. What we see that over time, actually, uh, really over the last 20 years, um, the incidence, like the proportion of people working on self-employment has actually increased, right? So it's, it was less than 12% in 2000, and it's over 14% now. That doesn't sound like a lot, but of course, you know, we're talking about millions of people. So yeah. one or two percentage points is, again, you know, many, many people. Yeah. And so we see this, we've seen this very strong, strong, you know, strong gradient over time of more and more people becoming self-employed. But interestingly, 
it's uh, self-employed without employees. So that's where all the, uh, the growth is coming from. If you look at the proportion of people who are self-employed with employees, that's been declining. Again, right. on quite, quite a stable, but you know, long run, significant downwards trend. Um, and there's all sorts of implications around that. I mean, I remember years ago, I did some work for the Federation of Small Businesses where we looked at kind of, um, you know, how do we get big firms? How do we get big firms that employ thousands of people? Well, you know, you have to grow them, right? <laughs> they don't yeah. pop up out of nowhere. And so there's a kind of transition. And what happens is, of course, you know, self-employed, you know, you become self-employed, you start off with no employees, then you get one to five employees, then you move up to the next batch, which is whatever, six to 10, yeah. you know, and you kind of grow. And, and, and each transition stage is a huge failure rate, of course, right? Yeah. We know that most small businesses don't survive. They fail within a, you know, within a year. So vast amount of churn, uh, and, you know, looking at the transitions and seeing what comes out at the end, you know, how many survive to become whatever massive conglomerates, obviously not many. So there's this kind of interesting long-term trend as the economy is changing, that's been going on for 20 years. And now we've had this huge, significant shock yep. to the system, but especially to those who are self-employed. And what you can see um, by, I mean, they must've gotten some COVID funding. Well, no, I know they got some COVID funding. They say it in the footnotes. And, you know, this, the LSE did a quick survey throughout the crisis for only those who are self-employed to see kind of, you know, what happened to them, what's their story. And you can see that their hours, first of all, their hours are going down significantly. Yeah. So most people will work between 30 and 40 hours per week. You and me probably work 30 to 40 hours per week. And actually that hasn't really changed over, uh, well, over this entire period. But for self-employed people, right, you know, their hours are obviously set by often the market conditions. And you see now that the vast majority, over 35%, um, are working 10 or fewer hours. Well, it's before wow. the crisis. Most of them were working 30 to 40 hours. So you can see a real reduction, literally, in just how much work is available to them. So that's quite, and, 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 and that goes hand in hand with significantly decreased income. So you see now that 50% of those people, of self-employed individuals, make less than £1,000 per month. Um, wow. I don't know how much you earn, but I know that <laughs> I certainly earn more than a thousand pounds per month and a thousand pounds per month really isn't, isn't that much. Right. And that's so, particularly if you're, you know, in London where a lot of these kind of, um, things start in the kind of gig economy, you're kind of mm -hmm. Deliveroo and, and Uber, you know, you start in the big cities in the big place where the opportunities are. Um, but you think about, you know, Uber, um, and taxi drivers, you know, in general, you think, you know, you're always hearing now, nobody, you know, if, if people aren't going out, people aren't needing taxis, people aren't needing Ubers. And if you're a, yeah, as you say, a self-employed, um, one of these people who self, you know, uh, without employees, okay, so you're one of the people working mm. possibly for, for Uber and, and uh, as an example of one, one bit of the sector, it's like, who's, you know, your income is just completely dried up there and i know the government had the kind of furlough type self-employed scheme but it's very you know you having to show your typical earnings in the past few years and and, and you know the support has just not been the same level for the self-employed yeah yeah you know it's it's interesting because there's actually a story within that story you know so um obviously income is down massively and and many people now you know half of self-employed now earn a thousand pounds or less per month 
But actually, if you look at the distribution, not a lot has changed for those who were making lots of money before right. and, and during the crisis. So if you're looking at individual self-employed individuals who are making four or five, six thousand pounds or more per month, actually their ratios have kind of stayed very similar. So really what's happened is those people who were earning, you know, one and a half to two thousand pounds, actually they suffered the biggest hit, right? So they saw all their income kind of just drop off. And those who were relatively well off beforehand are still relatively well off even now. And obviously, if you're making £6,000 more than a month, you generally you'll be a self-employed person with employees. Yeah. And again, if you look at this data, these kind of companies tend to have survived better. Now, when I know we saw these new stories about pub owners shutting down and letting their employees go and all that kind of stuff. But in the data, what you see is it's really the self-employed with no employees who are being hit the hardest and again there's a story within that story within that story <laughs> and that is that that's all correct but interestingly a small proportion of all those people are the kind of the app-based workers the gig economy workers people who yeah. use their mobile phone digital apps to take on jobs and there the results are that actually there hasn't been that much of a change from before and after uh, in fact a lot of them are working more than before so I guess that is the thing. If you are in the, as you say, there's kind of sectors within sectors within sectors. And if you are working as a, a self-employed person in this kind of new economy, um, but you're not in the kind of service of physically going out and, and, and delivering food or delivering people or whatever it is that you're, you know, parcels or whatever it is you're doing, that kind of sector. Mm. If you're in a more high tech yeah, web development, app development, kind of digital solutions for things, then actually probably uh, everything was online already. Uh, you're delivered, you know, people download your product rather than having to have a physical shipment or anything like that. Um, you're working, probably working from home anyway. Um, I mean, you probably, you know, you're going to be hit in the same way if you've got uh, caring responsibilities, children, et cetera, as anybody else. But aside from that, you're probably, the technology of how you do your job is set up for, you can work from any, you know, you can work from your phone, you can be anywhere, you can do, what yeah, yeah, but it, 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 it's interesting that you just mentioned schools. So again, let me take it on a little bit tangent as well, because the report also highlights that actually schools had a massive effect on the kind of how well-off self-employed individuals are. And that is because a lot of self-employed individuals actually work from home, right? Yeah. So the median self-employed individual spent 75% of that time working from home. And uh, it wasn't until schools opened again, so until, uh, until September when it happened, yeah. Um, that um, that really the kind of disruption to these people's working patterns sort of um, went away. And and the report, interestingly, and I still found this in myself, even though I'm not self-employed, is that actually men were more disrupted by having the children at home than women. Yeah, <laughs> It I turns out I men can... are not good at dealing with children at home. <laughs> Yeah, I think I can, uh, I can imagine that's the case, but um, from my, from my experience anyway, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's interesting with the schools thing, because I mean, we talked in, in the first time we had a guest on um, since lockdown, we had Simon Burgess, and he obviously does lots of research and has done a big report for the Royal Society about the impact of school closures. Um, but that, that report is more looking at kind of the impact on, on learning. But when we talked to Simon, um, back in May, he was saying, you know, one big thing about schools is that they are effectively childcare, right? For the hours of say eight thirty till three fifteen or, or whatever. For for most people whose kids, you know, if, if all your kids are in school, 
that is your childcare for that amount of time. And so as well as the kind of the learning issue, keeping the schools open is super important. If you are trying to make sure that people can keep working and get the economy going again, then actually having the schools open. And as you said, you know, that was a massive policy decision. And um, I think it's, it's obviously had huge positive impacts for people's work possibility, as well as, you know, the, the, we'll, we'll think about, you know, going forward, the impact of the lost learning on, on young people. I mean, we initially thought it was going to be just, a, you know, 10 weeks maybe, and everyone thought, okay, well, the kids will be back in school after Easter, and then it would be, oh, actually, you know, maybe not Easter, but they'll be back in school after May half term, uh, or, you know, or they'll be back in school for that, you know, last period. And pretty much it didn't really happen properly um, until September, right? So the kids lost that whole time from kind of March through uh, to the summer and that and we had the a level fiasco oh yeah i mean yeah, yeah. all sorts of issues yeah. around that and likely to be repeated next year as well i mean there's all sorts of issues around that i mean it's interesting that you know i'm sure there'll be some very interesting papers coming out in the long run and we talked about this at the time that there are yeah. long-run effects from this uh, not only from the lost schooling which you and i is something uh, where, where you and i work closely yeah. but also from you know entering a labor market during a recession we know that this is a lifelong effect you will not recover from that if you hit the labor market at 21 or 18 and things are not going well you're yeah. you, you've just lost a vast chunk of lifetime earnings um so i think loads of long long run effects coming out of this and uh we've also talked about some other things so i remember in one of our episodes we talked about uh, births and yeah. we looked at the east german example where in the unification there were you know obviously east germany kind of massively collapsed and huge economic shocks and yeah. we saw the birth rate just plummet absolutely plummet and not not by a few percentage points but you know you know, cut in half kind of a thing it halved yeah that was the arno chevalier talked to us about how yeah his paper looking at that when the berlin wall came down and birth rate just dropped through the floor and i think we will be seeing that exactly we'll see the same thing well not only here across across all the countries in the world probably but i think so i saw an interesting so there was this laura kunzberg the other day was taking the prime minister to task on um whatever bbc news and she was saying something to him about why is the second lockdown so late you know what about all the yeah. lives you've cost of you know the people who are dying and you know, all, all that kind of stuff and boris johnson was kind of mumbling his way through an answer saying oh you know there's costs and benefits and we need to think about other, other things just other than just the COVID patients and he didn't give a very eloquent answer but actually underneath that is is, is a kernel of truth in that you know what we will see from this very likely and i tried to check the statistics on this unfortunately like i said earlier they won't be out until late 2021 yeah. um I suspect there will be one of the repercussions from all of this is that we will be missing thousands, if not tens of thousands, children from our streets going forward. And that is a lifelong effect. Those yeah. children will never be there. So we'll be missing their schooling, their labor market contribution, their pension yeah. <laughs> uptake, uh, you know, loads of things. So, you know, thousands of children will be missing because of this crisis. And I think what we learned from... Um, Arno's paper as well is that it, there's differential effects different parents respond in different ways and in the East German example I think it was um, that the kind of more educated parents decided you know there's so much uncertainty we're not you know we're not having kids um, whereas so there was this kind of social selection and in, in who the kids who were actually born in those cohorts right and so that then showed up in their school results later on you had this big dip uh, for those particular 
cohorts in, in, in outcomes. So it's not only that, you know, you're missing these thousands, tens of thousands of children, but it's that you get um, the children that are born are from a, a certain selection of parents and that, that led to them having kind of lower results. And, and, and so again, you kind of, you're getting lower output, you're getting kind of in, impacts that are just going to be there. Cause yeah, as you say, the rest of the cohorts just missing uh, and that lasts forever. Yeah, that lasts forever. So I think, you know, we know from beforehand from labor, you know, doing empirical labor economics work that you can trace these effects. Lesser shocks can be traced forever. So, you know, there'll be a lot of work coming out of this and there'll be a lot of repercussions coming out of this. We'll see. We'll see. I mean, you know, we can we, we can speculate fairly well. You know, I'm 100% sure that the birth rate is going to take a massive yeah. drop. Uh, and there's all sorts of other effects on this. But there we are. I think one of the things going forward, I mean, one um, hopefully positive thing that will come out is um, I've been talking recently to a, a few um, health experts and public health officials and uh, people who do research on public health. And one of the things that the pandemic has really highlighted is the existing um, issues and inequalities in health that there are across you know across the country and these things have really been exacerbated by covid and so you've got these kind of um biological uh and socio-economic um interactions right so you've got this this disease but you've also got a, a real distribution of um non-communicable diseases so you're kind of your obesity your high blood pressure these sorts of things that are quite prevalent um across the uk uh, but very kind of unevenly distributed and then you've chuck in this kind of covid shock and you get this kind of interaction between existing um disease pandemic you know, epidemics uh, that we already had and this new infection and it's just really highlighted these entrenched uh, inequalities um the uh, actually richard horton the, the editor of the lancet um wrote fairly recently that actually it's not a pandemic we should call it it's a syndemic uh which i had no clue what that what that even means i think i think it might be a made-up word but um anyway but but basically to say that actually it's more than just a a virus that's affecting the population uh there's this interaction yeah between biological and socioeconomic factors um and it's just in highlighting these kind of deeply entrenched inequalities in health that there are already and to tackle it then is going to need more than just you know oh we've just got to you know have a vaccine for covid no you, you know you've got what you really need to tackle is these health inequalities that already already exist these epidemics of of non-communicable diseases uh, and deal with those because otherwise you know the, the the long-term consequences we're going to be dealing with for you know a long time uh, and, the, and the health of the nation is going to suffer Sounds like uh, uh, a call for more research funding, Matt. Sure. Yeah. 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 I mean, <laughs> more um, work for us. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. And 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 the kind of yeah, public health. I think I think it, it has really highlighted the importance of public health as a public good, right? Because again, if you care about your economy, you need to have a healthy population, and you need you can't have these inequalities in health um that we've had already you know already existing and so i think if anything this hopefully will um 
yeah, lead to more research, but also lead to more kind of action at the policy level uh, to address some of these uh, inequalities. Well, I think we'll come back to this in another six months' time once we've had the budget and we see, you know, what the price to pay for all of this is. Uh, I'm sure. not so confident that that was suddenly we're going we're gonna to improve society massively by this. Uh, I think we might very well end up with austerity for another half a decade, if not longer. Well, we hope, I hope that, you know, the policy lessons from 20, uh, 2008, 2010 have been learned that, you know, austerity really doesn't, isn't the answer uh, and hopefully uh, governments have learned that but I guess wrapping up just thinking friends you know you mentioned that you are able to get access to your data again um, so what are you you know what are you working on what's what's making your research rock at the moment uh, <laughs> that's a good question it's only been the last couple of weeks that my research is rocking in actually it's been uh, it's been quite quite empty for a long time just because you know getting data access is really really yeah. hard in these days and times i mean anybody who works with data professionally things have changed in the last 10 years you know you cannot just download data anymore and start playing around with it it's really hard now lots of paperwork with lots of legal paperwork to sign off and that has very serious criminal implications if you do something wrong so yeah, no, we have, you have to do things properly. Nothing. Do you remember years ago we were talking about grammar schools? Yeah. And uh, I think we might have mentioned this. You know, Theresa May had this big. I think we've mentioned grammar schools once or yeah, twice. A couple uh, of times, yeah. And um, so that that that's kind of again escaped the public. You know, it's kind of gone under the radar, hasn't it? But there's still a kind of policy, I think, because we still have a conservative government that kind of believes that you know grammar schools is the way forward and and will help everybody including all the poor children just become better at school yeah and um, we finally managed to um to merge in fact this is data from you um although you got it from somebody else um you used it in one of your papers uh, this grammar schools data onto the census data oh, yeah. and we've looked at social mobility and how that's related to grammar schools you know are your life chances actually improved if you go to I want to call it, I've got to be slightly correct here, we're calling it a selective school, not a grammar okay. school. There's some yeah. data issues around that. Sure. So, um, yeah, the answer is no. Um, right. The answer is no. <laughs> yeah, that's, um, that's what I... It's, it's kind of what, what, what you would expect, but of course, you know, somebody has to come along and provide the evidence, and we're kind of doing that. So we're getting some good results coming out. And yeah, no, it's good to... I mean, it's one of these papers, we've talked about this again also in the past, where you spend a lot of time, a lot of time working on it, uh, years, you know, lots of research funding going to, is this funded by the SRC? And you come out with a big fat zero. And, uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> you yeah, think, well, if, that's a, if it's a precise zero, that's good, right? Yeah, it's, it is actually a very precise zero. So um, we're okay with that. Yeah, so that's kind of, that, 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 that makes me happy again. Good. And... Um, so yeah, so you know, we'll wait for further news until we actually publish something. But it looks like grammar schools are not the way forward. So you heard it, you heard it here first. What about you, Matt? Well, I think we've heard it here first many, many times already, right? <laughs> but again, it's one of those things that we mentioned earlier. You know, it's good when uh, uh, an economics paper shows you and, and convinces with the evidence that actually this causes this, right? So you might find, you know, some, and again, it's one where people might say, oh, well, that's obvious, you know, that actually um, it didn't, you know, it's not going to make a difference um, for the kids who get in or don't get in. You know, we know the types of kids that get in and it's not going to make much difference in that application. But to actually demonstrate that conclusively is the name of the game, you know, and it's, it's a lot more difficult than uh, people, would, uh, people would think. Um, so, yeah, that's cool. Um, I'm not working on, on grammar schools at the moment. 
Uh, I am actually trying to get back to my data because I have similar kind of issues of getting access to the data. And I have a couple of projects where the data is only accessible via my computer in my office, uh, which I haven't been to since the middle of March. And so trying to uh, sort out the various, yeah, paperwork to get it so that I can actually access it at home. Is, so that's what's taking me six months. Because that's what's taking me six months to move the data from my office, access from my office to my home laptop. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. So I'm, I'm on that same kind of track at the moment trying to do that. But once, I, once I've done that, I'll be able to uh, work on some stuff which has been looking at, again, education, looking at school leaving ages and, and what the impact is of, uh, of, of raising the, the education participation age and, and how that all played out in England. So that's that's why I'm very keen to very close to having it done in March and then uh it's very frustrating not to be able to touch it since then but um yeah that's what I'm keen to get back in well I'm sure our listeners look forward to more education results I'm sure we will talk about them uh, at a future time but I think um yeah I think for now uh that's that's a good good point uh, a good teaser trailer to leave it uh, at this point in the I'm back in 2021 you've been listening to policy matters my name is Matt Dixon And I'm Franz Borsha. And we'll be back with more soon.